welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFBRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Fetterman, and my guest this week is Nigel Gould-Davies, the Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and author of Tectonic Politics, Global Political Risk in an Age of Transformation, published in 2019. Um, Nigel's great expertise, particularly on the region that is the subject of this podcast, comes in part from his experience as a diplomat. He was the British ambassador to Belarus from 2007 to 2009, and he's also been the head of the economic section at the British Embassy in Moscow. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today, Nigel. Hello, Steve. Can you hear me? I'm just saying it's a great pleasure to be back on your program. Uh, yes, I can. Thanks very much, Nigel. And apologies to you and, and to the listeners for for um, for the error, for the technical problems. So, and thanks a lot for joining uh, for joining us. Um, uh, so it's great to have you. Now, the first thing I'd like to discuss um, is what's going on in the war in Ukraine. There's been fierce fighting in the Donbass in the east uh, for weeks now, uh, or even months, but there's also a lot of attention on southern Ukraine, in particular around Kherson, where Ukrainian forces have taken back some territory and may soon uh, launch a major counteroffensive. Uh, now, Russian forces still hold much of the Kherson Oblast, or region, including the city of Kherson which they seized not long after the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. It's the biggest city that uh, the Russians hold outside the Donbass, where uh, they control Donetsk, Luhansk, and Mariupol, which they occupied after virtually destroying it with missiles, bombs, and shells, and killing thousands of peaceful civilians or more. Uh, the R Russia also controls parts of the Zaporizhia Oblast, uh, but not the main city, uh, and control over these regions gives, uh, gives Russia a so-called land bridge along the Azov Sea coast from the Russian border through the Donbass and up to the Crimean Peninsula. At the same time, uh, Russian officials, including Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, have made it clear that Moscow intends or, or wants to control uh, the Kherson and Zaporizhia regions in their entirety uh, forever. And Moscow may seek to stage referendums this year, uh, part of efforts to cement Russian control over these areas. And in fact, I believe today the Russian-installed um, you know, putative head of the Zaporizhia region announced or ordered that there be a referendum um, on joining Russia. Uh, so that's a development directly in that uh, in that direction. Um, Nigel, what, what do you think uh, Russia's next steps may be in the war? And how important is what may soon be an escalating battle for much of southern Ukraine? Yes. So um, we'll get to what uh, what Russia may do in respect of annexation in a moment. Uh, that issue you just touched upon. It is very important. But let's I think, start by casting the net sort of a little more widely than that, and look at what Russia is doing in the round and, um, and, and might aspire to. And there are several domains to think about, military, political, and, and diplomatic as well. Um, and let's go back briefly and remind ourselves that um, although, at least in my view, the outbreak of the war and Russia's invasion uh, was uh, to be expected, I thought that from as early as last November, this was going to happen. Uh, the course of the war, at least uh, for a period, has been unpredictable. So the invasion predictable, but the course of events much less so. Um, and let's recall initially, of course, it was this rapid attack along five axes um, to Kiev. Uh, the first surprise that failed and was pushed back. And then a new narrative took hold. Uh, this is Ukraine's counteroffensive, very quickly pushing back those many, at least, of those early gains. And then for the past couple of months, maybe a little more, there's been a, uh, a uh, something much more closely resembling a war of attrition, slow, grinding, costly, uh, large uses of artillery, um, small and limited gains. Those gains have enabled uh, Russia to 
uh, gain control, at least for now, over all of Luhansk uh, region. Uh, but now, I think, as you drew attention to, the most significant potential uh, near-term military development is a Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive uh, to retake uh, Kherson. Uh, and Russia knows that and is preparing its uh, defenses accordingly. So this is something that Russia, in effect, will be reacting to. Uh, they no longer, in this regard, have the initiative. Uh, they are reacting. That's something that no leader likes to do. They like to be in control of events. And I think it's fair to say that Putin has a particular aversion to reacting to uh, events. Part of his modus operandi over many years has been uh, making uh, sudden uh, sometimes dramatic and unexpected moves that disconcert others and to which others have to uh, respond, to keep others off balance and surprise them. Uh, and now uh, he's much less in that position. Uh, he may try to regain the initiative in some degree. We may have, we should think about lateral moves and unpredictable things, always sort of think uh, imaginatively when we're trying to anticipate uh, Russia. There are a number of escalation options that they could attempt. Uh, a very significant escalation of air power uh, is among them. We've also seen a calculated um, uh, portrayal by the Russians of their risk acceptance. And even their, maybe a better way to put it, would be recklessness in the actions that they're taking, uh, they're conducting around the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. Extremely dangerous reckless, risky, and irresponsible. And I don't think that's really about trying to take control of any particular part of that territory. It's much more about signaling a, uh, a recklessness um, that um, they uh, want to um, uh, uh, disconcert uh, Ukraine and its Western supporters with. Uh, calculated or mess maybe less than calculated uh, 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 irresponsibility. Uh, we've also seen some diplomatic initiatives, of course, and more may follow. Uh, the most significant is, I think, the deepening relationship with uh, with Turkey. We've seen uh, the two meetings with Erdogan in, in quick succession. Uh, there's something complex and interesting going on with that bilateral uh, relationship. Uh, and then, the, the, of course, the grain shipments, which now finally appear to have begun, as a consequence in particular of that first uh, meeting in Tehran. Um, incidentally, I just draw attention to the fact that one of the most interesting aspects of that second meeting in Sochi was apparently Ramzan Kadyrov was present, at least in Sochi, uh, maybe not at the, the bilateral meeting between the two leaders. But uh, given, given Kadyrov's role in this war uh, and the... Uh, uh, the um, uh, prominence and visibility, if not necessarily uh, military effectiveness of the Chechen forces. I do think that is that is interesting him to sort of pop up uh, like that. Um, but yes, I think uh, in terms of finally on the political front, uh, watch Russia's apparent preparations to annex areas it currently controls uh, beyond Crimea itself. So a repetition and uh, expansion, enlargement of the Crimean precedent. A fake referendum. The, uh, uh, the, there are even reports now that might be conducted online. So uh, all, all pretense of, uh, uh, of any kind of normal process, not that the Crimean one was normal, of course, uh, would disappear entirely. Uh, and all sorts of signs that this could happen uh, really within the next month or month and a half, sometime before the end of September. Uh, steady efforts, accumulating efforts on the part of uh, Russia to try to establish an infrastructure of domination, uh, making the use of the Hrivna uh, illegal, uh, uh, making it impossible for Ukrainian phone networks to function, and possibly most sinister of all, uh, the imposition of new educational uh, curricula uh, and textbooks are on these occupied regimes. Uh, so wh why would Russia do this? Why would it try to annex these territories, uh, especially ahead of a uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive? 
I think that the part of this is is you know very important politically. If Russia annexes these territories, it will assert that these are now parts of sovereign Russian territory, and that therefore any attempt to liberate them on the part of Ukraine would ipso facto be an attack on Russian territory. Now, it's unlikely that any other country in the world would recognize that Russian claim, possibly Syria, possibly one or two others, but it would be uh, unrecognized by the international community. Yet Russia would try to frame any future Ukrainian offensive in those terms, an attack on Russian sovereign territory, uh, and therefore claim the right potentially to respond with much more serious means. So this could risk some form of, of escalation. So I think it's very, very important at this point that the West be politically and diplomatically ready to respond vigorously to any unfounded, unjustified claim of this kind by Russia. Uh, thank you very much for that. No, very, I mean, the the idea of kind of signaling recklessness uh, is pretty startling, I think, but, but it does seem to be exactly what they're doing. And I think Kadyrov is one of the one of the people who's used or uses himself for that. Um, so that's quite, that's quite, um, quite an interesting sign. Uh, I'd also just say, um, uh, what one thing I'd like to sort of ask you about though, is, um, and I agree entirely that, that Putin loves to, uh, do things, uh, to take actions that are unexpected and surprising and catch uh, others off guard uh, in this case. And you mentioned, you know, the idea that he'd, he'd rather not uh, be kind of reacting. But on the other hand, I've heard, and I really don't know much about this, but isn't it in some cases more difficult for the side that is on the offensive? Um, in other words, seeking to take back uh, territory, uh, you know, than, than the side that is, on the defensive, as, as as Ukraine has been through in most of most of the time in this in this war, uh, I I think it's an it's important to make a distinction between uh, offence and defence on the one hand, and aggression and liberation on the other. So to aggress to take the offensive on foreign territory, as Russia tried to do in February, is uh, more difficult than defending our own territory, as the Ukrainians have done since February, but it's also more difficult than liberating your own territory. So, of course, Ukraine would not be aggressing uh, in a counter-offensive to free uh, Kherson or any other part of its territory. It would be seeking to regain territory uh, and liberate a population that is fundamentally sympathetic to it. One of the reasons uh, why, among many, must be said, why Russia failed in its primary objectives in February was that it was attacking a population that did not want to be attacked. So, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's uh, an, uh, a counteroffensive that Ukraine is preparing for. And yes, Russia is preparing for that uh, and digging in accordingly and uh, developing its defences and so on. But it's important, I think, to remember that it does not enjoy a sympathetic uh, population in that territories, in those territories uh, when it's trying to do these things. All right, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for that explanation. Uh, it tells me a lot that I didn't, didn't understand, I think. Now, you, you mentioned um, the idea that at this juncture, this kind of very important time for the West to be on its toes, um, so I just wanted to ask you something in connection with that. Uh, last time you were a guest on this podcast in May, we discussed an article you had published in the New York Times, in which you wrote, among other things, that at a minimum, Western policy should ensure that Russia gains no new Ukrainian territory and continues to face severe sanctions until it fundamentally changes its policy toward Ukraine, unquote. Um, in terms of the first of those two imperatives, almost three months later, I just want to ask how things are looking um, 
Is the West on its way to helping Ukraine ensure that Russia gains no new territory? Uh, or does it seem to be failing in that regard? Well, I think that um, a key part of this question is uh, how united and resolute the West uh, is and is likely to remain. There is very unlikely to be an early outcome and settlement uh, of this war. It's going to go uh, on on its many fronts uh, for a long period. So uh, ever since, uh, almost ever since the, the war broke out, you had this extraordinary, uh, strong and united Western response across states, across civil societies, and across the private sector as well, unprecedented degree of unity. Ever since that sort of sudden coalition and support of Ukraine emerged, uh, people have been posing the question, well, how much longer uh, can it last? And pointing to this bit of evidence and that bit of evidence and this speech and that speech for evidence of wobbles or cracks or some tendency uh, to uh, for that coalition to weaken in some critical way. And I certainly think that's something that Putin is hoping for as well. But it seems to me that if one focuses on deeds rather than words, uh, one has to remain impressed by the extent of, of Western uh, resolve. We've now had seven packages of sanctions. Uh, we've had uh, more rather than fewer heavy weapons being sent to Ukraine, including even uh, from Germany. Uh, so, you know, so in those, those respects, we're in a different world, even from, from what we were in, in, in February or, or, or March after the invasion began. And in terms of sort of concrete developments, uh, those Western heavy weapons, the American high-mass systems in particular, and other systems like it, are close to uh, becoming something like a, a game changer. Uh, that, I don't really sort of resort too easily to that, that overused cliche, but they clearly have had quick and significant effects. And to, to uh, make a, an analogy with the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, recall the, the significant difference that the, that the stingers uh, provided to the, um, to the Mujahideen. Uh, had uh, in the course of that war, not decisive, but significant. Um, maybe there's a way of uh, just thinking about the, the high Mars and other such systems as the, as the stingers of this, uh, of this conflict. It's worth, worth thinking about. The sanctions, as I say, have been escalating and are having effects, uh, real effects and financial effects. There's a lot of in focusing on sanctions uh, utility. There's a lot of uh, early focus on uh, sort of financial indicators like the rule exchange rate and the current account surplus. And people, for those reasons, say, well, look, they're not really having much uh, uh, much impact, these sanctions. Um, uh, I, I, firstly, I don't think that those financial indicators, which are useful in normal times, if you're looking for uh, the effects to, uh, to assess the, the severity of a normal kind of economic shock, uh, on a, any an economy, I don't think they are anything like as useful uh, when the the shock is, as it were, politically uh, imposed by sanctions. Look, look instead at real effects. What is happening to actual manufacturing sectors? Uh, and I think there's a lot of data, a lot of evidence coming in that those are doing the corrosive and cumulative damage that will get worse. But even the financial story itself, I think, is becoming uh, more difficult now. And the, uh, the story, the argument, the, the kind of sanctioned sceptical argument a, a few months ago that, well, look, all these hydrocarbon revenues are surging and Russia is stronger than ever. Even that part of the story is, uh, is weakening now. Uh, Russia's uh, uh, hydrocarbon revenues are something like uh, monthly revenues are halved since, uh, since April. So, uh, yeah, I think if you look at, at the deeds uh, that the West is, is carrying out, both on uh, on the, the military front, as it were, and on the economic home front. I think we can be impressed, not that we should be complacent, but it seems to me that's, uh, uh, that's encouraging. But to go back to uh, an earlier theme of this conversation, I think it is very important if Russia does try to assert a fundamental change of political facts on the ground uh, and claim new areas as sovereign Russian territory. Uh, there must be no appetite, no inclination whatsoever to say, OK, well, let's try to sort of settle 
the conflict uh, and let have let Russia have a bit more uh, territory. That is no solution at all. Uh, at the best, in the best case, it could lead to a ceasefire. It would certainly not lead to the end of the war writ large, because I see no evidence whatsoever um, that uh, uh, that that Putin has uh, scaled back his fundamental long-term objectives for this war. Uh, meaning to essentially subjugate Ukraine. Absolutely right. The, the language of denazification and demilitarization has not waned. And Putin and a number of people around him or close to him have in terms reiterated that. They simply say it will take uh, longer. But they've never disavowed uh, these goals. And in a sense, on the contrary, uh, as this war has gone on, the uh, the domestic framing in Russia of the war and what's at stake has escalated to uh, to existential uh, uh, levels uh, and uh, define this in effect as part of a fundamental long-term struggle uh, with the West. That's very much how this is seen. Not only even a conflict with Ukraine anymore, but something uh, of of global magnitude. So, uh, yeah, I see again no no signs that uh, that anything short of uh, achieving the full subordination of Ukraine would satisfy uh, Putin, and even that wouldn't satisfy his ultimate ambitions. It seems to me that's um, and 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 I I'd agree. I mean, Putin has made remarks. Uh, quite recently that have, you know, indicated that it goes beyond Ukraine and that he's, he's framing it, as you said, as it's kind of an existential battle with the West. Um, um, and he hasn't, I guess he hasn't hidden that. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, great, great points about the idea that Russia trying to kind of create facts on the ground. I, I think, you know, just from conversations with kind of, uh, people in the West who are not you know, may not be paying that much attention. They aren't focused on on the region. Um, I think some some people sort of wonder, say, well, let's you know, let's settle it. Let's have, you know, they can keep the Donbass, you know, whatever. Um, and now, I think part of what what Russia is trying to do with uh, with with Kherson and Zaporizhia is to is to just move the move the borders of that of that kind of concept of where okay now let's let's let them have this but as you say you know this is something that um is not going to accepting that is something that uh, presumably is not going to resolve um anything so i I think you've explained very well why uh, this this kind of phase of the war is, is so important um um i'd like to move on you know both in terms of what's what's happening on the ground and what's happening in the West and the resolve. Uh, I'd like to move on uh, to um, to Belarus um, and hear your expertise on, on that country uh, today. Uh, tomorrow, August 9th, will be two years uh, since the 2020 presidential election. Uh, Alexander Lukashenko, in power in Belarus since 1994, claimed a landslide victory and a sixth term, I believe, but there was widespread evidence of fraud, and Belarusians who turned out for mass, who had turned out for massive campaign rallies uh, in support of his main rival, Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, hit the streets uh, for peaceful protests over a vote that they said was clearly uh, and brazenly stolen by Lukashenko. Um, in a podcast series uh, that RFERL's Belarus Service has created to mark the anniversary, uh, Tsikhanouska recalls those days and says that for a while before the election itself, there was a kind of euphoria and, quote, it seemed to us that then that we had already won. Uh, and I would say that for at least a few days after the election, it seemed to me and, and many others, I think, that the opposition had won or was about to win, that Lukashenko would not remain in power for long uh, and he'd have to go. Uh, but um, that did not happen. He countered the protests with a brutal crackdown, and two years later, he's still in power. And many of those who protested are in jail or have left Belarus, essentially forced out. Now, Nigel, this is um, a broad question, but what's your main takeaway from what we saw in Belarus 
uh, in Belarus two years ago and what we're seeing now? And, and how big do you think Russia's role uh, has been in the way things have developed? Moscow certainly strengthened its influence over Minsk since August 2020, I would say. And Belarus hosted some of the Russian forces that rolled into Ukraine on February 24th and afterwards. But it has not sent its own forces to Ukraine. Hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, the uh, elections two years ago were comprehensively falsified. There is absolutely zero, zero doubt about that. The peaceful demonstrations that followed uh, were in turn absolutely unprecedented uh, and uh, nationwide in nature. Uh, and yes, for a while it seemed there could be a fundamental change. Lukashenko had a, a Ceausescu moment, but there wasn't a Ceausescu outcome. So it seems to me that reflecting on uh, the two years that have followed, there are a number of sort of lessons and implications. Uh, and not only for Belarus, but for uh, authoritarian regimes more generally, including Russia. Um, the first is that uh, apparent stability in such a system can be an illusion. So Lukashenko clearly did not expect uh, these events himself. Uh, a, an apparently fairly quiescent, fairly stable situation can suddenly erupt without more or less without warning, at least without warning sufficient for uh, the regime. So expect surprises. There is that, uh, that phrase, which I think is quite useful for situations like this. It takes longer than you think and then happens faster than you expect. Uh, the second lesson is that uh, the hunger for freedom doesn't go away. Uh, and Lukashenko had dominated the uh, scene for a quarter of a century. Uh, he believed he, he controlled comprehensively uh, Belarus and its information space and all the rest of it. Uh, and yet, in, in effect, you know, almost an entire sort of generation of his rule, uh, the, the desire for change and especially for freedom, it doesn't go away. It can be suppressed for a time, um, but it's, it's still there and it can persist and it can express itself in dramatic ways. A third lesson is that uh, veteran autocrats can make mistakes, big mistakes. I think Lukashenko made a number of them. One might argue that the longer they're in power, the more likely they are to make mistakes because they get out of touch. They're surrounded by yes-men. Um, they, uh, they are too confident in their own judgment. So, of course, these are all uh, potential lessons for Russia itself. Uh, and one big question is, you know, what is what is the read across uh, for what might follow in in, in Putin's Russia? A, a rather different lesson, one that's more depressing in nature, perhaps, is that what we've seen after those uh, those nationwide peaceful demands for change erupted, uh, their uh, suppression and brutalization shows how isolated a ruthless regime can be and yet stay in power, at least for the short term. Uh, and because uh, this regime, it seemed to me, had very, very few supporters and even fewer that were keenly or actively uh, supportive of it. Uh, and uh, there are really two reasons for this, it seems to me. One is that there was uh, no real elite defection. Uh, and I think a lesson of other times and places of changes like this is that you uh, that change when it happens uh, comes from above as well as from below. It requires a critical mass of, uh, as it were, the big people as well as the small people to take the view that the regime no longer serves their interests uh, and that a, a different and better future is possible. Uh, and the second reason is that uh, of course, Belarus was helped by Russia in a number of ways, financially, uh, in terms of the sending of uh, so-called political technologists, uh, other forms of uh, support as well, with the, the controlling, reasserting uh, control in, in, in a security sense uh, too. 
Uh, of course, the Kremlin was taking notes, uh, studying the situation in Belarus, drawing conclusions for itself as it faces the, the 2024 election, uh, even as it was providing the support. So what are the implications for Russia? So uh, I mean, it seems to me on those two points, elite defection and being helped by someone else. Now, of course, Russia can help Belarus, but there's no one really to help Russia, uh, especially now that Russia is on very, under very severe sanction. And there's no one that's going to play the role to Russia that Russia played in, in, in Belarus. So that, that part of the picture is different. Um, and secondly, it seems to me that at least now, compared with uh, Belarus, it, there is a greater degree of elite pluralism, or at least diversity, still within Russia. There are still groups of people that sort of matter. Uh, the system is not uh, yet anything like as totally dominated by Putin as the, the Belarusian regime was dominated by Lukashenko. So if one draws attention to those two differences uh, in Russia that compared to Belarus two years ago, then one might be at least less pessimistic uh, that if it came to some uh, major demand for change um, below, um, then it's at least possible we could see a, a better future in Russia than at least for the moment Belarus uh, has seen in its own case. So there's a lot to think about in the, in, in the comparisons that we, we draw attention to there. Yeah, absolutely. A lot to think about. And uh, I think you've helped uh, help people frame it. Um, you mentioned in the context of Belarus and Lukashenko, the idea that autocrats make mistakes. Uh, and, and you mentioned the link to Russia. And I certainly thought immediately of, you know, uh, Russia and you know, has has Putin, you know, a lot of people say Putin has made has made a huge mistake. Um, and I guess we will be finding out um, how big, you know, how big those mistakes were, both, both in Belarus uh, by Lukashenko and in Russia uh, by Putin. So um, uh, that will be something to watch, of course. Um, we're getting short on time, um, but let's take a few questions. Uh, if there are some questions from from listeners. You can request speaker privilege if you want to ask a question or send a DM or apply to the tweet, apply to the link in the tweet. Hi, Martin, you can speak. Thank you. Good morning from here in Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, Canada. Um, so the Economist had a very important discussion, by the way. Thank you so much. Um, the Economist uh, had a uh, an article, uh, I think it was last week, and which basically, uh, long story short, said what many of us and many people around the world have been saying, it's certainly in the West, that uh, Russia is now a fascist regime. Um, so I guess picking up from that, uh, and they're, they're taking enormous losses in Ukraine, even by the uh, minimum amount that um, uh, have been um, have been estimated, uh, you know, in terms of both manpower and uh, equipment and the new uh, weapons systems that the West, uh, particularly the United States and uh, Great Britain, have been supplying to Ukraine, um, e.g. the HIMARS, um, are effective, extremely effective. So I'm just wondering, yes, this is the long game for the uh, dictator in Russia, uh, Putin, but... Um, how much longer can they sustain it with all of those losses that they are incurring, both in manpower and equipment? And let me just add, before I ring off, and sorry for being so long-winded, um, the, the, the heroic resolve of uh, the Ukrainian people and 
and I mean people, not just those in the military. And it is, I, I would say, a, a people's war um, because the whole of society is mobilized, but so many others uh, who are involved um, and those as well from the international community. So I'll, I'll go down to listen and, and I'll just let you respond. And thank you so much. Yeah, that, that, that's an excellent question. It, it raises the, the issue of the, the role of time in this war and which side does time favor. So uh, I've always seen this as a war being conducted on, on two fronts. One is on the ground with military means in Ukraine and the other is on the home fronts of the respective participants by economic means. Now, uh, on the ground, as you say, uh, Russia has suffered uh, heavy losses. It suffered very heavy losses early on in the war, and it suffered heavy losses in uh, uh, gaining control over uh, Luhansk. And there's a variety of Russian sources now, as well as outside observers, but, but Russian sources too, which strikes me as really significant, drawing attention to the shortages in Russian manpower. Uh, the, the great problems now with uh, with uh, with the quantity and quality of infantry, uh, and this imposes a real constraint on uh, Putin, and he knows it, I think. But he faces difficult dilemmas in resolving it. What we've seen up to now is a, a series of barrels being scraped within uh, Russia, looking for new sources of manpower that can be cajoled, uh, persuaded, or paid to fight. And that includes taking people out of prisons, offering them the liberty in return from for rudimentary weapons chain training and being sent to the front. They've taken people from uh, deployed in South Ossetia and, and Abkhazia and Georgia, for example, even from the border, the Tajik border with Afghanistan. Uh, what they haven't yet done is order a general mobilization. Uh, they haven't yet called it a war and they've not yet uh, requiring rather than, again, cajoling or persuading or bribing people to fight. There is no comprehensive uh, mobilization and mass conscription of the kind that there is in Ukraine. Uh, they haven't done that yet. And I think Putin knows that's a, a Rubicon it would be dangerous to cross. That is the real test of how popular this war uh, will turn out to be in Russia. It's easy to support a war if you're sitting in a sofa watching the television. It's a very, very different matter if you or your husband or your son is being told they have to go and fight. So that manpower is a real constraint. Uh, and I think it's you know beginning to, uh, it's come, come, coming close to biting now. And so Russia faces real problems. As I mentioned earlier, I think Russia faces escalating economic problems as well. It's not only a matter of the, the kind of diffuse pain that sanctions uh, and Russia's uh, really dramatically sort of growing isolation from the global economy will Will, will impose on the country as a whole, but specifically ways that might uh, compromise its ability to uh, to produce new equipment. If you've got don't have access to high spec semiconductors, it's it's hard to make uh, uh, smart weapons, for example. Uh, so uh, in that in those respects, time may not be on 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 Russia's side. Uh, but I come back to this point that uh, for the West too, it's very important to be to focus on the role of time and therefore to remain unified and resolved uh, and and resolute uh, and of course russia russia although in overall terms drastically economically weaker uh, russia is less than 3% of the global economy yet it has these weapons and just going back to this question we started with steve uh, of what russia might do next of course they are playing with the gas taps uh, and putting the west putting europe on notice, they can turn those gas flows off completely. And I think they're banking more and more on that, on breaking the West's resolve by imposing uh, economic costs on uh, European populations. Uh, and as it's still very hot, of course, now it's uh, high summer, August, but, but, but that will pass, of course, and the winter will approach. And uh, I think that that's what is Russia perhaps as much as anything, is counting on now. Some turning off of the gas, forcing, forcing uh, an abrupt shift or erosion of uh, resolve in the West. So again, it's very, very important that the West prepare for that uh, too. Because finally, and again, thinking 
once more about the role of time. If the West gets through a first winter without gas, it will be able to take the measures that will leave it better prepared to counter that weapon, to resist that pressure in any future winter. So this will be the first and the most difficult test. And if the West passes that test uh, and is able to retain the political resolve to continue supporting Ukraine and resisting Russia aggression through this first winter, come what may, then I think things will look very difficult for Russia. All right. Thanks very much for that. I also had wanted to ask whose uh, whose side time was on. Um, thanks for the very comprehensive answer. And, you know, it does show that even more, even more evidence that now is kind of a crucial time. And as we head into winter, um, Western resolve seems extremely important. And, and, and I guess that that kind of ordinary people in the West are going to become more of a, of a factor, um, perhaps than they than they had been, than they have been so far. All right. Um, I think we have time for another question, if uh, there are any. Give it a few more moments. Hi, Patricia, you can speak. Hello there. Um, hello from Montreal, Canada. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I have a quick question, and it's um, uh, a little different from what we you've been discussing so far, which has been fascinating. Thank you. Um, I've been in Belarus a number of times, but the last time was 20 years ago. And um, I'm uh, fascinated to uh, read about so many um, particular young uh, Ukrainians, who Russian-speaking, who are um, now switching to Ukrainian, both uh, spoken and written Ukrainian. And I'm, um, when I spent time in Belarus, there was uh, almost, almost nobody that spoke the, the Belarusian uh, language, a few elderly people. As I say, this goes 20 years ago. Um, the vast majority of the people were assimilated into Russian speaking. And uh, of course, they represent only about a quarter of the population of Ukraine in terms of numbers. But I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, since I've been a little out of touch with regards to Belarus, if there has been um, a similar revival at all of the language, culture and identity, which, of course, always, um, you know, can, can always play an important role um, in, you know, in, in these moments of uh, crisis. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good and thoughtful uh, question. And just for a moment, drawing the, the analogy with uh, Ukraine and uh, Ukrainian, of course, Ukrainian was always spoken much more widely than than Belarusian in Belarus, uh, and yet we've seen a uh, a a kind of sort of catalytic uh, effect uh, since at least 2014, since the the Russia's first invasion of Ukraine. Uh, many more people uh, making the decision to uh, to either learn or to develop their Ukrainian uh, in in Ukraine itself. So uh, the sense that this uh, uh, this um, the, this threat uh, that uh, and the violence that, that Ukraine has suffered from Russia has been a has been a, a kind of a, 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 a catalyst of uh, Ukrainian uh, further development of Ukrainian uh, identity. Uh, so in in Belarus, yes. Yeah, so I remember a few few years ago. Certainly when I was when I was there, uh, I think one so one of the tests is whether people speak Belarusian in the home. And there's a proportion that speak both both languages, uh, Belarusian and, and Russian. But how many speak, people speak as it was a default language? And it was the, the, the statistic at that point was, I think it was around 10 or 15 percent, something like that. So in practice, a, a minority. Uh, further complicated by the fact that the, as it were, the purposeful speaking of Belarusian became a marker uh, of uh, oppositional uh, uh, commitment and activity. It was almost considered an oppositional uh, sort of act to, uh, to 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 do that. To the extent that people uh, even sort of risk, risked risked arrest by doing so uh, uh, publicly uh, on occasion, because the regime itself, the Lukashenko regime, 
uh, was, uh, I would well, actively discouraged, uh, uh, because Lukashenko himself does not, not really speak Belarusian uh, much at all. Um, uh, and as Russia uh, imposed non-military pressure, but sort of economic and political pressure, uh, about sort of ten or fifteen years ago, including I remember it when I was when I was there, the regime began to kind of flirt with a, a so-called soft Belarusianization. You began to see and hear more uh, officially permitted uh, uh, so uses of of Belarusian, always, of course, you know, controlled and and curated and and within limits. But uh, even on sort of the television, you used to you used to see more Belarusian being uh, being used. Uh, so there has been that kind of mottled uh, uh, background, but uh, I do believe now that, uh, uh, especially in, since since the the uh, the inspiring and then inspiring events and horrific response of the uh, of the regime uh, in uh, since uh, since uh, the elections two years ago, then these these things are catalysts of Belarusian identity, much as oppression uh, against. Ukraine uh, has been uh, in that case too. So yes, watch it. It's a beautiful language, uh, mm-hmm. by the way. So I don't know if you learned any or heard any while you were there, but uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's uh, just a it's, a it's a lovely thing. And uh, yes, and in, uh, in the best case, it will it will flourish as as Ukrainian is. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for the answer. Mm-hmm. Yes, thanks a lot, and thanks for the question. Um, we're almost. Uh, running up against one hour, but um, I think we could take one more question if, uh, if somebody has, has one. So I'll just give it a moment. Okay, uh, I see you have a question um, uh, that was sent. So I will ask that one on behalf of William. Um, he says, we've seen a lot about Belarus getting involved. Do we know if Belarus has been asked and refused? In other words, getting involved in the war directly in the war in Ukraine. Could they afford to get involved and still maintain domestic security? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. This is, this is a very interesting uh, question, of course, uh, Belarus is de facto a, a co-belligerent because it has hosted attacks from its territory, of course, by Russian forces uh, against Ukraine. Uh, but uh, as far as we're aware, no formal use of of uh, Belarusian forces. Um, there is, of course, a partisan Belarusian detachment fighting for uh, Ukraine against uh, against Russia. Uh, it seems very likely that uh, th- this is something that the Kremlin has uh, pressed for. Uh, there are, it's hard to get a precise fix on, but there are certainly rumors and reports of uh, sort of known deep unhappiness uh, within the Belarusian armed forces uh, at the prospect uh, of this. We know also, of course, that uh, ordinary Belarusians have at great risk to themselves taken steps actively to hinder the movement of Russian forces uh, within Belarus uh, and into uh, Ukraine, especially both by cyber means and also by physical means, uh, complicating the uh, uh, and diverting the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the movement of railway uh, traffic. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, that uh, one of the reasons that uh, Lukashenko will resist this as, as much as he feels it's possible for him to do uh, without uh, sort of jeopardizing his position, is that, uh, uh, yes, he may worry about the, the implications uh, for uh, the loyalty of the, the Belarusian armed forces, or at least parts of them. It's hard to know exactly. Uh, uh, but uh, that, that will certainly be a, a relevant consideration. If one looks at the, the range of uh, security forces used in the crackdown uh, against uh, Belarusians themselves. Uh, seems to me that the, the armed forces was used less than uh, a whole range of domestic security forces. Uh, and the second reason is that Belarus would fall under even more severe 
Western sanctions, if uh, it were to um, uh, uh, escalate its status from a co-belligerent to a full military participant uh, in the war. Uh, and those are two significant constraints, it, it seems to me. Uh, thanks very much for that, Nigel, and for the question. I'll just add, to me, it seemed um, in the 90s and 2000s, it always seemed like Lukashenko was saying, and people in Belarus were saying during during Russia's wars in Chechnya, were saying, well, you know, at least we're not at war. And I think even, you know, some, some Russians um, looked to Belarus uh, in a positive way because um there they you know it, its government wasn't sending um sending uh young men to war so you know i think that's still probably a concern for lukashenko uh as he presumably continues to try to resist uh if russia's if russia's seeking um its involvement in in the sorry in terms of sending troops themselves um i uh this is Extremely interesting, but I'm going to cut it short here because we've been going for one hour. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up. Um, Nigel, thanks very much for joining us, and I, I hope to talk to you again soon. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, and thanks everyone for joining. All right, great to have you, Nigel. Um, and yes, thanks for the questions. Once again, I've been speaking to Nigel Gould Davies, the Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus uh, in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned, uh, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next Monday for the next edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please have a look at my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on Friday. Thanks for listening.